0: I want you guys to read along with me a portion of the gospel text again this morning where we're going to focus our time together. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Today we're going to be looking at just this portion of the gospel text we read with an eye towards better understanding the shape of our mission, the context of our mission, and the power available for mission. That's what we're going to try to do today. We are now a week removed from the events of Easter. And as I said before, we are here the second Sunday of Easter, the octave of Easter, the intensification of everything that we just went through as a church last week. But you know what? Much like the disciples in the upper room that first Easter morning, we're still looking for answers. What are we supposed to do now? What does the resurrection mean for you? What does it mean for us? More importantly, what does it mean collectively for us as a church We find ourselves longing for more. We find ourselves longing for what we are to do next. We want to be on mission in the world, but what does that really mean? We as individuals, and this church as a community of faith, desires to be about the Father's business. But we don't always understand how we can do what He has sent us to do. We're going to try to unpack this issue by doing three things. One, we're going to take a a big, big picture, 30,000 foot picture of John's gospel, the whole thing. But we're going to put a special focus on our little section of the gospel that we read this morning. But we're going to look at the whole thing because it's part of a story that's moving from creation to new creation. And it's that movement that helps us understand not only the shape of our mission, but the power for mission that's available to us. Two, we're going to explore the shape of mission by looking at the example we have from Christ as he gives the Great Commission here in John. This is John's version of the Great Commission. And then finally, we're going to take a really quick but intense look at the power available to us for mission. So now let's turn ourselves to this brief overview of John's gospel and see what John's doing here. One of the most important things I'm going to try to convey today is that the Gospel of John was crafted, written, and edited in such a way that it takes you as the reader on a journey from creation to new creation. From what God was doing in Christ all the way back in Genesis 1 to what God is doing in Christ in John 20. That's the journey we're on. That's the path we're going to walk this morning. And this will help us think about the mission of the church and the power that is able to sustain us in mission. So let me demonstrate what I'm talking about. Most of you guys are familiar with John 1.1. Anybody want to venture how John 1.1 starts? In the beginning. Okay. Well, we've come across that phrase before in the Bible, haven't we? We know that John at that point is quoting Genesis 1-1, which also has in the beginning. So if you're a Greek scholar, you can open up your Greek New Testament and realize that the Greek New Testament there in John 1-1 has the exact same Greek words as the Septuagint has in Genesis 1-1. No one really denies, not even scholars who usually can't agree with each other on the color of a t-shirt. They don't even deny that John is using Genesis. He's doing something purposefully there. He's trying to tie his gospel to the story of creation. He is, as it were, writing Jesus into the events of Genesis 1. And if you go through John's prologue, you see this stuff happen again and again. You see John introduce these themes like light and life. And if you go back and read Genesis 1, light, life, all this stuff's happening there in this opening chapter of John. Well, why? What is is John really trying to do And what if I were to tell you that John is not only doing it there, but in our gospel passage we just read, he's doing it again. What's the reason there? If you look at John 20, verse 1, we didn't read that verse this morning, but if you look at 20, verse 1, it opens up with this. Very early on the first day of the week, and then you come to 2019, which was the first verse we read, and you come to, in the evening, on the first day of the week. Morning, evening, evening day. Where do we hear that? Is that not Genesis 1 as well? Morning and evening were the first day. Is that not creational language? Is not John showing us yet again that he is tying that to there? What's going on? And you know what? The ties between John 20 and Genesis don't stop there. There's a little phrase we read in the gospel reading this morning where it says, Jesus, he breathed on them. Okay, so if you go to Genesis 2, verse 7, at the expanded story of the creation of humanity, you have God move upon Adam and breathe into him. The exact same Greek words are used again in the Greek Old Testament Septuagint and in John's Gospel here. And just like the first readers of this Gospel would have made no mistake when they heard in the beginning, when they heard he breathed on them and all of a sudden they became alive and he gave them mission, it would not have been missed on those first readers. They would have heard exactly what John is trying to tell on them is tied directly to that creation of Adam given in Genesis 2. And the use of this phrase implies that just as God breathes life into Adam, Jesus is breathing the life-giving Spirit into His disciples. God made Adam alive for His work, and Jesus is making His disciples alive for their work. So this connection between John 20 and Genesis is just as strong as the ones we find in John 1 and Genesis 1. In fact, these two chapters function as an inclusio. And that's a really fancy way to talk about a literary device that means bookends. So it just begins and ends the book in the same way. It's tied together. Because we're supposed to read this gospel as going from creation to new creation. We had Jesus involved in creation now thanks to John's gospel in John 1. And then you come to Genesis 20. Well, what's going on? You've got creation language being used again. But it's a new day. It's the first day of a new week. As the Orthodox theologians will say, it's the first day of the new creation. The eighth day. That mystical eighth day that they all talked about in their works. You'll find that. Jesus' involvement in creation takes us to his involvement in the new creation. Time doesn't permit me to do a full and expansive walk through all of John's gospel. I wish I had a week to spend with you and I could... I can point you in the right direction. Uh, Noted New Testament scholar Tom Wright has written substantially about the ties between John and Genesis in his magisterial work, The Resurrection of the Son of God. If you've got a spare time to read 750 pages, I recommend it to you. He points out that several themes are at work across the entire gospel that demonstrate John's heavy use of creational language. But the strongest one is Wright's presentation of the seven signs from John's gospel As a restating of the seven days of creation. And again we can't unpack these all. But you have Jesus. He comes to the wedding in Cana. And turns water into wine. And that corresponds to the spirit hovering over the waters in creation. You fast forward all the way to Good Friday. Which is the sixth day of the week. And there in Jesus' persecution. There in Jesus' presentation to Pilate. You have Pilate have this throwaway phrase. That's really not a throwaway phrase at all. He says, Behold the man. Behold the man, which is appropriate for the sixth day of creation, because it's on that day that God forged and made and created Adam. And Pilate is saying, Behold, Adam in the garden. Making the right decision rather than the wrong one. Behold the man. And then, of course, on the seventh day, what does Jesus do? He rests in the tomb, because it's the Sabbath, and that's what God does. And so you come to that point of this restating of these seven days of this, of this tie. And you come to this point to where he is making this gospel proclamation, making this missional statement to his disciples. As the Father sent me, so I send you. It's the beginning of new creation. As we look closer at the shape of the mission that Christ gave to his disciples, you have this little ragtag group of followers gathered in this pathetic little upper room in terror. The doors are locked because they feared that the Jewish leaders who had just been instrumental in Jesus' trial and death would now turn their gaze upon them and see them persecuted, if not killed. It was a logical fear. It was a legitimate fear. But then suddenly Jesus appears in this room and greets them with a customary greeting of, Peace be with you. A greeting that perseveres in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, even today in that region of the world. The greeting... It's always there. His first call to peace, however, is not enough. And he pronounces it upon them again. And he adds at this point, As the Father sent me, so I send you. And with these words, John gives us his take on the Great Commission. But Jesus in this passage very clearly ties the mission he gives you and I as his church to his own mission. But what does that mean for us? What does that mean for this church? What does it mean for Church of the Incarnation as you follow Jesus today? Because aren't there really some quote-unquote one-offs that belong to Jesus' mission that we can't reproduce, that we can't, so to speak, do over? Well, certainly. There are aspects of Jesus' mission that belong to Him alone. He has made full atonement for sin. Nobody's asking you to do that. We believe that He has fulfilled numerous prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. Again, Jesus isn't asking you to do that. He's not guiding us into a mere repetition of His ministry. Rather, we are expanding what He began by following Him as a guide or a model for what mission even means. The key lies in the use of the phrase, As the Father sent me, so I send you into the world. So Jesus is sending the church into the world. And just what are some of the aspects of Jesus' mission that we should seek to emulate and seek to model? First, church, Jesus' mission was entirely self-sacrificial. And our mission efforts have to be self-giving as well. He left all the glory of heaven that was his by birthright to take upon himself flesh fashioned in the virgin's womb so he could serve people in the world. Likewise, Christ has sent his church out into the world to put the needs of others ahead of our own needs. Leadership among Christians is not defined by ability, by strategy, vision casting, all those things that we want from our CEOs and COOs and all those things. Leadership among Christians is defined and measured by a willingness to serve the least of these, which is why the call to be a deacon is a call that never disappears. Whether someone becomes a priest or a bishop, they are first and foremost and forever a deacon, a servant. We do not exist to meet our own needs or even the needs of our own little circle. Rather, like Jesus, we have to be looking outside of ourselves for the opportunity to join God who is already on mission all around us. How do we do that? By helping others with whatever needs they have, be they physical, spiritual, or mental. We have to come to terms with the fact that the call to be on mission like Jesus is a call to be pushed to the edge of society to be pushed to that place that's full of the ugliness of sin. And you know why? Because that's exactly where we were when Christ came to us with the glorious call of the gospel. If you want to follow Christ, you have to be want to be sent out like Jesus was from the Father. You have to be willing to sacrifice your own wants and desires for the good of others. Second church, you also need to remember that the mission of Jesus was as wide as creation itself. And if you want to follow his mission, you have to be prepared to expand your horizon as to what you think mission means. It won't be a narrowly defined little box. I constantly remind myself of the vastness of God's mission with these words from Oliver O'Donovan. In proclaiming the resurrection of Christ, the apostles proclaimed also the resurrection of mankind in Christ. And in proclaiming the resurrection of mankind in Christ, they proclaim the renewal of all of creation with him. That's a glorious picture of the resurrection, a glorious picture of how wide Christ's work was. But as soon as you start talking about mission and the church having an impact on all of creation, you will quickly confuse people, especially in our cultural context. It's easy for them to think that you're saying that creation stewardship or matters of ecology are what are central to the gospel and not preaching or serving humanity. But that's not what we're saying. Rather, when we speak of the creation-wide work of Christ, we're saying that the work of God in Christ has something to say about every aspect of our lives. And that is good news. I know Aubrey well, so I know he's beat the drumbeat of the gospel being important for all of your life very strongly. The scriptures give us a mandate whereby the verbal proclamation of the gospel remains central. But it's not the end of the gospel. God does care about every aspect of our lives. He cares about how you treat people. He cares about the work that he gave you to do for his glory. He cares about your marriage. He cares about your family. And yes, he does care about how you farm and how you treat the rest of his created order. Why do these things matter to God? Why does all of this matter? Why is it important that this be true? Why is it important that the gospel touch everything? Why? Because God's called you and I and His church to be His image-bearing creature. That part of creation that reflects His glory out to the watching world. And if you live in a manner that does not genuinely reflect the glory and nature of God, you are in a manner of speaking, telling lies about God. And that's something we should want to avoid at all costs. So as we think about the shape of the church's mission, it's vital to keep in mind that God is concerned with every aspect of our lives, not just our private interior spirituality. And finally, we need to remember that the shape of Jesus' mission was intensely relational and personal. As we see Jesus' own mission in John's gospel, we see a Jesus, we see a man that had a deep and vital relationship with other people. And these relationships often moved him to act. So often in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, you have this, this idea of Jesus being moved. And it's, 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 the word actually means his stomach hurt. He was moved in, in a compassion center of his body, moved to act by his relationships that he had with people. I think this is most clearly seen with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. This was no surface level friendship, these were Jesus' real and true friends. He loved them cared for them in both His humanity and His divinity. And it was from this deep bond of friendship that Jesus wept for the death of His friend. And this relationship moved Jesus to act on behalf of Lazarus. Love remains a great motivator. The kind of relationship that we see Jesus modeling can serve as a guidepost for you and I. The call to be on mission is a call to be in relationship with others. You will never have a context for authentic missional efforts unless you're willing to risk being generally vulnerable with other people in friendship. I think about it like this. you know, I, I, live, in, I live in Durham, North Carolina. And to have any kind of idea of what Durham and Chapel Hill is like, if you could imagine Berkeley, California picked up and moved to North Carolina, you have this enormous... Thing, area that it's 20 years ahead of the curve in terms of everywhere else in North Carolina of what society is like. So we live in a neighborhood that's full of what I would call post-Christians. They don't have any need for the gospel. They have no need for anything like that. They don't know of their own need before God. And so what do my neighbors need? Do my neighbors need a perfect, polished priest who is the epitome of, how would you say, public presence? And just knows exactly how to stand and exactly how to speak and how to answer their questions. No, that's not what my neighbors need. That's going to get them nowhere. They're going to not respond to that at all. What my neighbors need is someone who has the exact same struggles that they do. But who comes at them with the light of the gospel. Who comes at them with different solutions. That's what my neighbors need. They need an authenticity and a transparency from me in the neighborhood to where I'm just like them. Except for Jesus. Because that's all we ever are is I'm just like everyone else. Except for what Jesus has done. So that's what my neighbors need. That's the kind of friendship that they need. Make no mistake. The call to mission includes a call to personal and significant relationships. You don't have the option of not getting involved with other people. You don't have the option of not getting your hands dirty. We have to be in the muck and mud of other people's lives. Why? Because we follow a king who was born in the mud and muck of a stable. Why else follow Him? The call to be like Christ on mission is intense. It's a heavy call. But it's a life-giving call. How are we supposed to approach this mission? Where do you find the power to sustain you in this? Thankfully, the answer is the power necessary for mission doesn't come from you, doesn't come from me. It comes from the power of Christ's resurrection at work in us. Our text today describes Jesus as breathing on his disciples and giving them the Holy Spirit. And we already noted earlier that John's hearkening back to Genesis 2 with these choice of words. But this creational language is key to you understanding the power available for mission to you. The expanded story of humanity's creation given to us in Genesis 2 presents the breath of God as the very source of life for Adam. It is this breath from God that enables Adam to undertake his priestly calling of tilling and keeping the garden. Well, the same premise holds true for Jesus' disciples as they're getting ready to embark on their priestly duty in the world. They are dead without the gift of the Spirit. You and I are dead without the gift of the Spirit. The work that Christ has given them and thus given us to do is so hard, so important, that we cannot undertake it with our own power. Like Adam in the garden... This task requires the life-giving Spirit of God being breathed upon us. And that's just what Jesus gives them. God always supplies the power necessary for any tasks that He asks you to do. We shouldn't be surprised by this at all. Think about this. When Moses felt inadequate for the task, God gave him what he needed both in Aaron as a compatriot and in direct friendship with God. In Matthew's Gospel, you have this great command to go and make disciples in all the world. And something that's often left off from that Great Commission is the fact that it's preceded by a declaration whereby Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, therefore go. That therefore is significant. The only reason he gives the Great Commission is because all power in the entire universe has been given to me. In the present tense. It's not something we're waiting for. In the present tense. And therefore, go. Make disciples. That kind of power is available and at work. Luke's command to go and bear witness in in Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria and other parts of the earth is followed by a full outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. When God asks something extraordinary of His people, He supplies extraordinary power for the task. And so here in John, we see the disciples given the duty to be new Adams in a new garden. And Christ makes them alive with the Spirit so they can fulfill the task And this power remains available for you and I today. And the availability of this power is the big takeaway from today for you. If you've been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection by believing upon His finished work, then the same Spirit that was given to the disciples is at work at you, conforming you to the image of Christ in a lifelong endeavor that we call sanctification. And as you are called of God to undertake your missional tasks, no matter the shape of those tasks... The Spirit is there to strengthen you and move you forward in service. God's called you to do the things you're supposed to do. And there are things that only you can do. God in you can do. There are things you are supposed to do for Him. And He's also supplied the power necessary for you to complete those tasks and callings. So I strongly urge you to approach God in prayer and ask Him to make this powerful mission very real in your life. Because you cannot reflect the image of Christ properly to a watching world if the Spirit of Christ is not at work in you. Lean into that power. Lean into that. I want to close with these words from Tom Wright, who reminds us of the vastness of the task for mission set before us. He closes out one of his books. I believe it's uh, Surprised by Hope with this. He says, I hope I've said enough to make it clear that the mission of the church is nothing more nor less than the outworking in the power of the Spirit of Jesus' bodily resurrection. And thus the anticipation of the time when God will fill the earth with His glory, transform the old heavens and earth into the new, and raise His children from the dead to populate and rule over the redeemed world He has made. With such a task before us, friends, We should ever be thankful for the gift of the Spirit to empower us to serve Christ on mission. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.